0: back to another episode of the History Connection podcast. My name is Michael Musangu. I'm a student here at the University of Portland. I study biology and minor in history. Today we're going to be going into another portion of our little study here regarding the rise of communism in the 20th century. And today we're going to speak about Mao and the Great Leap Forward from the years 1958 to 1962 and kind of the events that went on there and then afterwards. We'll also speak about Mao's life and who he was and his motivations leading to these this event in history. That said, before we get started, let me leave you with some food for thought. This quote is by Milton Friedman, a great economist during the 20th century. He says, and I quote, a society that puts equality in the sense of equality of outcome ahead of freedom will end up with neither equality nor freedom. Let me say that one more time. A society that puts equality in the sense of equality of outcome ahead of freedom will end up with neither equality nor freedom. I I think this, is a great way to set off the stage of our discussion, because equality of outcome, meaning that everyone gets the same outcome, and no one is above or below another is different from having the equality of opportunity to be able to make your outcome, what you want to make. The thing is, and the reality is, everyone has different needs. So a need that could be for one person, may not be a need that's for someone else. And therefore, I believe going into today's episode, you will see that in a lot of ways. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. So the Great Leap Forward itself was a short, or wasn't a short, but it was an economic and social plan rather that was used from 1958 to 1960 that was essentially aimed to transform the primarily agricultural or rural economy that China had at the time to a more modernized society. Now, honestly, one could go into detail by truly understanding um, who Mao was and who he was as a person. So. Before we get to his, um, before we get to like the full story of the Great Leap Forward, I think it'll be best if I go into Mao's story, just a little bit. Now, Mao himself had a pretty humble upbringing. He was born in, on the twenty sixth of December, eighteen ninety three, in the Shaoshan, uh, in Shaoshan, a city in the Hunan province, Hunan. Province. Rather, from a young age, Mao was a huge reader, and he definitely liked novels concerning rebellions and unconventional, and unconventional military heroes. But at the age of 13, after five years of education in the local primary school, he was uh, he was forced to leave uh, school and return back to the farm. Um, Not long after that, he was supposed to he was actually forced to study on his own for a few years until he was about 16 years old, and afterwards. He then went back to school to complete his elementary training at the Hunanese capital of Changsha. It was during this time that we also see powerful changes in the revolutionary mentality that started to actually um, that started to actually overcome Chinese society at the time, because the Chinese uh, the the last Chinese dynasty was actually falling during this period. It actually crumbled and everything just went into turmoil in, in this period. He read the works of. Chinese nationalists, reformers, such as Kong Wei, or King Wei, and he also had a large admiration for strong Chinese uh, emperors in the earlier periods of Chinese history. He also had large respect for George Washington. But above all that, Mao also had a brief career in the Chinese military, from the years 1913 and 1918, when he was in the first Hunan Normal School. It was very uneventful, but he did have a bit of military experience during this time period. In 1918, he graduated from normal school and went to Beijing, and he eventually started to get caught up with the intellectual and political activity of the May the 4th movement during this time period. Now, in short, the May the 4th movement was an anti-imperialist movement which demanded Chinese independence and sovereignty. The leaders wanted societal and political reform, in short. They wanted to get rid of the Confucian Confucian values that were really uh, overtaking Chinese society in the imperialist government and have a more democratic government, more liberal individualism, science, industry, that sort of, those governing values to govern the society. That said, after this, during this time period, Mao then got a post, at Beijing University. Even though it was a minor post, he was exposed to the Dean Chen Duxiu and the librarian Li Zazha. These were the eventual founders of the Chinese Communist Party. So with his exposure here, he then started to move between Changsha and Shanghai in 1919-1920. to Mao actually picked up a couple jobs, but was, but he mainly devoted his energy to reading and writing and talking about uh, revolution, really. By 1920, he described himself as, and I quote, a Marxist in theory and to some extent in action, unquote. And this actually was where he actually started to take part in communistic activities and things that the upcoming Chinese Communist Party wanted to do. In, in July 1921, he was part of that same group, along with the dean and that librarian who I mentioned before here, that started the Chinese Communist Party or the CCP. He became a major participant in the United Front. He also became a, a, the head of the KMT, which was the nationalist part which was the national which was the nationalist party that really was the peasant movement training institute and this essentially opened his eyes to the revolutionary potential of chinese peasantry. in fact, with what with his eyes being opened during this time period, this actually shaped his political um his his political views. Uh, being a marxist and a communist, obviously he he leaned on the ideas of karl marx and and, and great uh, revol- communist revolutionaries before him. but we must mention that mao also had his own Little version of communism, uh, so we shall say, and his version was he viewed the peasantry as the as a great as a great way to incite revolution in China, and we will see how this comes to play in the Great Leap Forward. Now, in 1921, he marries Yang Kehui, Kehui. The daughter of um a master here or a professor at beijing university she was later executed by the kmt which was the nationalist party as i mentioned before in 1930 but by 1928 mao had already begun to live with another young girl who was 18 years old her name was ho tsu chen over the next nine years they eventually had five children and by 1937 he divorced and he married another woman named Chang Ching. By 1927, Mao and his communist... How do I say? By 1927, um, moving beyond his marriage life and personal life, by 1927, Mao and his communist colleagues were also involved in some uprising, uprisings in southern China. And this led to a large distrust of the Soviets And it also led to a deep animosity between Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists. Now again, now let me do a little quick blurb on Chiang Kai-shek as well. Chiang Kai-shek was a military general. He was also leading his own faction at the time. Chiang Kai-shek and Mao were slightly different in ideology. Chairman Mao, or Mao as he's known, was communistic. His idea was China to become a great nation, to become a great nation, and that's through the hands of communism. Chen Kai-shek had a wife that was actually from America, Chinese-born, of course, but she studied in America. So Chen Kai-shek was actually very sympathetic to the West and their values and actually believed that China should also become a prosperous nation, but that was to come through the world of capitalism. So there was a lot of deep animosity that was going on between Mao and Chiang Kai-shek because their values were different. Actually, in World War II, quick side note here, um, uh, FDR or um, Frederick, uh, Frederick Delano Roosevelt, he actually was very sympathetic to Chiang Kai-shek before the war started. And even after the war started, he was still very sympathetic to him actually fdr thought that china was a good was also supposed to be a prosperous country he was very sympathetic to the chinese ideal of rising up and becoming a strong nation but eventually over time fdr started to believe lies that were told to him that shang kai-shek was not doing any fighting against the japanese but rather it was the communists led by mao of course and of course FDR chose to believe that Chiang Kai-shek didn't do anything and that it was Mao. When it was actually the reverse, Chiang Kai-shek was a military um, general, actually. So he was actually fighting the Japanese. Well, actually, the communists with Mao were actually doing nothing. But regardless of all this, the key here is there was a lot of animosity between Mao and the nationalists and Chiang Kai-shek. All right. During all this time of deep animosity and all these uprisings that were going on, Mao then retreated back into the mountains with some of his followers. And they retreated to Cheng Kang Shang. And he he faced a lot of realities during this rural revolution. He also established the Red Army and the development of of a defensible base area in his late 20s and 30s. Or in the late 20s and 30s, rather. He also consolidated his rule over the party in the years after the Long March. And he directed a lot of strategy during the Sino-Japanese War and the Civil War. The Chinese Civil War, that is. The Sino-Japanese War, um, for a quick background here, was really when having to do with the Japanese invading China, thinking that they could take over China. And really what this led to were... major atrocities in history on the Chinese at the hand of the Japanese, such as the Rape of Nanking. We will go over this specific episode in history later on, but that was part of the Sino-Japanese War. This was really the beginning of World War II in the Pacific during this time period. So Mao was in charge of a lot of strategy going on during the Sino-Japanese War in this time period and the Chinese Civil War to follow. The philosophy he had was really relying on the peasantry and guerrilla warfare to lead to the success of the CCP in China. Following the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949, Mao did a lot of political initiatives that transformed China. In fact, there were a lot of agricultural reforms that took place along with more widespread medical services. That really actually started to seem like China was progressing in a good way. But we then lead in these reforms to what happens in the episodes surrounding the Great Leap Forward. As I mentioned before, it was an, an economic and social plan that was n- aimed to, to embolden and grow China into a modernized society. Kind of in the same way that Stalin wanted to grow and modernize the Soviet Union. Mao was very influenced by Stalin. Mao actually liked Stalin a lot, but Stalin didn't like Mao, as we'll see a little later here. The Great Leap Forward was, this was the name actually given to the second five-year plan, which was scheduled to run from 1958 to 1963. So in January, 1958, the plan was unveiled to rapidly develop China into and um, into an agricultural and, dis- and industrial power, essentially. They they wanted these two sectors to be developed in parallel and to be developed quickly so that they could really become a prosperous nation. His idea was that in order to achieve these goals that were outlined, there had to be a huge collectivization method modeled on the USSR's third, uh, third period, as it was called, which was necessary in the Chinese countrysides. Again, Mao was basing a lot of his theories and his and his um philosophies of modernization on the things that Stalin had did in the past. Unfortunately, I don't think Mao really thought about this too hard or even if he did, it, he probably didn't care. But let's just remember, what Stalin did didn't work. So I don't know how Mao thinks what he was doing was going to work, but let's just continue on and see. By the end of the year of 1958, well, actually, let me back up a little here. So, his whole plan was in order for um, his whole plan to be brought up with uh, advancements in the agricultural and, and industrial sectors, there would be people who were all living in the countrysides put into huge communes. And basically, These experimental communes were going to have people living there, everything, all their houses, materials, everything they have would be put to the use of the advancement of the Chinese economy and industrial sector. Experimental communes were actually established in Henan in April of 1958. And by August of 1958, it was decided that this was the formal way to organize the new economic and political organizations in rural China. By the end of the year... There were 25,000 communes that had been set up with an average of about 5,000 households. The communes were relatively self-sufficient cooperatives, actually. and And basically, wages and money were replaced with work points. In other words, work points were gained by the amount of work you do. If you don't work, you don't eat. Plain and simple. Now, Mao saw in his mind that grain and steel production were the key pillars of economic development. In fact, it was decided in the, um, it was decided, well, before what was decided at the Politburo meetings, he made a prediction that within 15 years, the great leap forward would actually lead to steel production that would pass that of the UK. And of course, we know that the UK was the leader of the industrial revolution. So it was decided at the 1958 Politburo meetings that steel production would actually double and that most of the increase would actually come through the backyard steel furnaces. So they had to at all costs ramp up and vamp up their steel production to beat UK with his prediction in his mind. Now, what is interesting is that these backyard steel furnaces. There, um, there were a couple units that were showed to Mao in a place called Hefei and Anhui. These were claimed to be high quality. um, They claim these uh, furnaces, steel furnaces, were claimed to be manufacturing high quality steel. The problem is, is that the steel was actually produced elsewhere. But what was shown to Mao and Haifei and Anhui was that, was was the steel that was actually from elsewhere. And he was convinced that it was from these steel furnaces in these backyard steel furnaces. So he basically said, we, this is great. So basically our steel furnaces work. Therefore, we need to ramp up our production. So Mao encouraged the establishment of steel furnaces on every commune. And to fuel these, uh, ser- uh, to fuel these furnaces, the local environment was stripped bare of trees and, and wood taken from doors and the furniture of peasants' houses. And they were basically all fueling those furnaces. And, and other things like pots, pans, and other metal artifacts. They were all taken to supply the scrap for the furnaces so that production targets could be met many of the agricultural the male agricultural workers were actually diverted from harvestation to help the iron uh, the steel and iron production and because and and not only this actually workers in hospitals factories schools they were also taken out of their own places to aid in steel production now honestly from what I just told you about how, those backyard furnaces were actually pretty terrible quality to making the steel that was trying to be made in these plans. If you couldn't tell already, the steel production of people who, you know, were schoolmasters and school uh, and uh, and doctors would not be able to bring out the high quality steel that Mao did see when he was in Heifei. Right. So essentially what happened is that there were actually low quality uh, lumps of pig iron, which was useless economically. So Mao, at this point, he starts to have a major distrust of intellectuals and he started to have a large distrust in the power of the mass mobilization of peasants. And this led him to basically perform this whole country-wide effort without consulting expert opinion. And what is interesting here is that, you know, Mao had a distrust of basically everything and everybody. And he basically made decisions without even regarding experts. And, and something that I would like to contrast here with, like, between Mao and Hitler, for example, at least during World War II when Hitler did make military decisions, he at least... When he tried to conduct war strategy, he at least tried to consult experts. Even though they had the wrong figures and stats, at least he was going off of expert opinion, right? Mao went to a level of hubris where he didn't even acknowledge expert opinion. He thought the way that he was doing was right to achieve this social utopia of... Everyone being equal, no one being above another. Everyone has to work and get what they basically eat what you kill. And if you don't kill, you don't eat. Now, it's unfortunate because, in short, on these communes, there was a lot of radical agricultural innovations that were actually promoted by Mao. And what's sad about this is that many of these ideas were based on concepts by a Soviet biologist named Trofim Lysenko, who was a discredited Soviet biologist. Some of these policies included close close cropping and deep plowing. Now, of course, I've taken a couple environmental science classes, and I can tell you for one, close cropping is such a bad idea because you're literally... Going to ruin the quality of your plants when you plant seeds so close together some of them may not even grow in that aspect and if you Dig way too deep and plow too deep and plant too deep Again Chances of moisture getting all the way into the ground if you dig a seed in two and a half feet underground is also quite small chance-wise, of course In early July to August of 1959 in Lushan, there was a conference on the progression of the Great Relief Forward program. Now, of course, many of the leaders at this point had reservations, but the only one who spoke out about this was Marshal Peng Dehuai. Mao used the conference to dismiss Peng, and um, he dismissed him from his post as defense minister, and he actually denounced him and his supporters as the bourgeoisie, or as bourgeois people right? The bourgeois, meaning, you know, the capitalist exploiters and the proletariat, which is the working class. So he decided to launch this campaign that extended nationwide against rightist opportunism. And Peng was actually replaced by Lin Biao, who began a systematic purge of Peng's supporters from the military. And regardless of the terrible innovations that happened, in 1958, the weather was actually okay. Um, it actually turned out okay. So the, the harvest actually turned out to be promising, which means, um, m- hey, you know, maybe there was hope for this program to work. But unfortunately, there was a lot of labor that was diverted to steel production. And because of this, the harvest was left to rot. And a lot of it was left uncollected. So the problem was, now you have a harvest that is rotting in some areas. And and you have a lot of crops that are going uncollected and everything. So you can see where this can go bad. Because one, we're going to have a shortage of food pretty soon. And second, to make things worse, there were now locust swarms, which were caused when their natural predators were killed as a part of the great sparrow campaign in other words you guessed it sparrows were killed don't ask me why i'm not completely sure about that but if you kill the natural predator of something you're going to cause a a a disbalance in the ecosystem like this is basic science if you kill if you cause a disruption in the food chain you will have food chain disruption that will not only affect the predator and the one that's being predated upon but every other animal that's in the food chain because it will either increase or decrease their population as a result you decrease the population of a sparrow you will increase the population of the ones that it predates upon the locust swarms as a result then started to eat all the food the harvests were greatly reduced and of course local officials which were under pressure from central authorities to report record harvests because they obviously wanted to report this in their reports for the year for international relations etc that their program that they're doing was going completely well everything was going perfect so they decided to report under pressure record harvests in response to the new innovations and and essentially because they were competing against each other This led to an obvious exaggeration of the results that actually occurred. These results were used as a basis now for determining the amount of grain to be taken by the state in order to supply towns and cities for exportation. Because grain eventually became one of the top exports for China during this uh, five-year period. I believe it was for the first two to three years that grain exports were were um, at the same level or even higher than they were a few years previously, but again, during 1958 to 1960, China used to uh, continued to be a large net exporter of grain, regardless of the famine. Mao wanted to maintain the facade that everything was going successful with his plans, and and the problem with this is is that there w- when food was harvested and when and when grain was collected. At the levels of prediction due to the exaggerated numbers of of harvest recording, you now had food that was barely left for the peasant workers. And in some places, starvation started to set in. In 1959 to 1960, the weather started to actually take a turn for the worst. And what you see is that you have many of China's provinces now experiencing widespread famine. And when I'm talking bad weather, I'm talking drought in some places and floods, terrible floods in other places. And this started to catch China by surprise. In 1959, in July, the Yellow River flooded in East China. And according to the disaster center, from the combined effects of crop failure and drowning, more than 2 million people died during this flood. By 1960, there was a drought also, and this affected about 55% of cultivated land and an estimated 60% of northern agricultural land received no rain at all. If you have 60% of cultivated land receiving no rain, the chances of you getting a crop on this level of unarable land in this time period will also be very low. Because of this, urban areas suffered much reduced rations. Because again, under his system, there was rationing, of course. Because again, no one's supposed to get more than another, right? Everyone's supposed to get the same based on this idea of, of equality, of equality of outcome. No one's supposed to be any different. Therefore, there were a lot of reduced rations, you get what you kill, and even if there isn't enough, you'll get a lesser amount of what you really worked for. I mean, that's fair, right? That said, there was mass starvation, mainly in the countryside, of course. And this was again due to the inflation of the production statistics. There was little food left for the peasants to eat. And what's worse is that the provinces that had adopted Mao's reforms with the, most enthusiast, with the most enthusiasm that really did the most work, that did the most cultivation, they actually suffered the worst. It was actually reported that cannibalism actually occurred in parts of China. I was reading a report a couple months ago on this. And actually what it was is that you see people actually finding dead bodies and literally just trying to... Like they were eating anything. I heard reports of they, people were resorting to eating grass. Some would eat dirt in efforts just to fill their stomach and they would die from eating dirt because they had no food to eat. And those who did resort to cannibalism, they probably didn't survive very much longer because of the starvation that did occur. The agricultural policies of the Great Leap Forward program and the associated famine would actually continue on until January of 1961. Grain exports were stopped, and imports from Canada and Australia helped reduce the impact of food shortages in most of the coastal cities. Because again, Mao really, during this time period, one, he didn't want to admit he was wrong. That That's something I think most people don't understand. Mao during this time period, when Pang brought his report to him and said, Hey, I don't think this is a good idea. Mao said, You're wrong. You spoke against me. I know what these people need. Therefore, I'm going to go with my way. And whether other people realized it and whether they did want to admit it or not, that's one thing. But Mao decided to go ahead and go with his plan. And, uh, and some of the reports I read were there were at least forty five million casualties i will get to the numbers here later in just a moment but because mao wouldn't admit that his plan didn't work and he kept going up with this hubris of we need to look good for the world we we need to make sure that our production doesn't drop unfortunately his plan collapsed and by 1961 with what collapsed there was a reversal of the Great Leap Leap policies that did occur. And that's when the food imports from Canada and Australia started to come in to help stop the famine in most of the coastal cities. The consequences of the program were pretty severe because the official toll of excess deaths in China were 14 million as reported by China, of course. Scholars have estimated that there were anywhere between 20 and 43 million people that were killed at the hands of Mao. And, of course, some of the reports, as I aforementioned, I read, said up to 45 million people were killed in this one event at the hands of Mao. And mm-hmm. Mao is considered to have killed the most people in the 20th century. Stalin killed a lot of people, that's for sure. Stalin killed, an, uh, uh, I think, um, he killed 4.5 million in, in Ukraine, 1.5 million in Kazakhstan, he killed 1.2 million in, in his great purges of the of the late 30s. He also committed the Caton Forest Massacre during World War II, or during that time period. Mao killed, or I'm sorry, Stalin killed a good amount of people. Probably around 10 million. Maybe 11, 12 million, somewhere there. I, I can't do all that math in my head. You can go look up the numbers. You can go do the research. But from what I have researched here on Mao, there was at least 43 million, or at least 45 million, according to my numbers that I've read, that were killed during this time period. And the three years between 1958 and 1962 were known as, or 1959 and 1962, were known as the three bitter years. Now, Regardless of this, there are some things that must be noted. The Chinese economy did grow vastly. Um, initially, it did grow a lot between 1958 and 1960. And it grew 45% in 1958, 30% in 1959, between 1959 and 1960. So there was a lot of growth that did on the outside seem that there was a lot of progression. Going on in the Chinese economy. But by 1961, we saw growth decrease drastically. But eventually, by 1964, you then saw the 1958 levels of growth come back again. So, in all of this that did occur, there was a lot of pain and there was a lot of trouble. And even after the Great Leap Forward program, Mao still started initiatives that were basically how do you say? The Capitalist Restoration. Uh, That's what it was called. The Capitalist Restoration Movement. Or Initiative, I should say. He led China's divorce from the Soviet Union um, when it comes to foreign policy and the things that he did. He also domestically started to become very weary of social and political inequalities that his subordinates were doing in order to approach development. So... In realizing that his Great Leap Forward program didn't work, he started to really become very wary when it caused mass inequalities. Excuse me, mass inequalities in social and other development. By 1966, he initiated the proletarian cultural revolution, which actually caused a lot of people who opposed his policies to be removed. In fact, there was so much disorder that was caused that the military actually had to be called in to restore order in 1967. And as of course, as I mentioned before, the defense minister Lin Biao, who was designated as heir apparent for Mao, he was actually placed as heir apparent. He started to have doubts. Um, Mao started to have doubts about him, and he actually started to challenge him more in the political realm. The reason of this is because. A contention point that they did have was that Mao wanted to open trade and and, and, and relations with the United States, and this was advocated by Mao and Zhao Enlai as counter to the as counter to opening relations with the Soviet Union because again. Foreign policy-wise, Mao already broke relations with the Soviet Union. Lin Biao was against that idea. In 1971, Lin died in a plane crash while fleeing China after an alleged assassination attempt on Chairman Mao. And really, after this, we start seeing Mao decreasing in a lot of... I mean, his first of all, his health decreased, so... There was a lot of decreasing in the power that he started to have really by the end of this. By his death, Mao actually had a lot of struggle between the Cultural Revolution people and his own party. So there was already a lot of contention. And by the time his death happened, throughout the late 70s and 80s, we start to see China then allow economic freedom to come in. And yes... Economic freedom came in, and that's when you actually saw China become prosperous. Which, in a sense, could be what you could call Mao's dream becoming coming true, because there was um, Chinese prosperity after this point. But again, it probably didn't come through the means that Mao probably prescribed. Again, the Chinese CCP or uh, the Chinese Communist Party, rather. Again, they had communistic principles. So, no economic freedom in that sense, right? Or what we call capitalism. But again, regardless of that, capitalism has allowed China to progress. And and I believe, actually, it was a necessary... It's a necessary function in order for society to progress. Because when you have freedom to choose who you want to trade with, everything else will follow. Now, that said, China may not have po- um, political freedom, freedom of speech, for example, like we do have here in America, or freedom of press or whatever n- whatnot, but they do have more open trade. They do have more market, more of a market economy in that sense. This has allowed for economic prosperity. This is, complete, is a complete refute to this idea of having an equality of outcome economically or through a communistic standard where everyone makes the same. Because everyone is different, there are going to be differences in how everyone will handle their money economically or whatnot. That's just the way it is. I hope this episode was interesting to you today. I thought it was very powerful because there was a lot of things that I learned about Mao and all the things that he did in the Great Leap Forward that led to the economic advancement of China, actually, at one point, but it also led to the starvation and deaths of over 40 million people. Communism has a pretty bad track record during the 20th century, and I believe that people are starting to forget... The impact that these ideas of communism did have on the people during this time period. As a result, I felt it was my lot to express these points here on the podcast and help you listeners understand the true cost of some of these events in history. Because there were needless deaths that occurred as a result. And... In a sense, Mao was guilty. He did cause this again, Stalin engineered a famine. Mao could have stopped what happened, but again, with his hubris and his inability to admit mistake, 40, some 40 plus million people died before he reversed the pro- policies, there was cannibalism going on. There were people literally getting arrested. There were people who were starved. And if, and here's the worst part, if you were sick and you didn't work, you were not going to get any work points, which means you cannot use those work points to get food. If you didn't eat food, you died. That's just a reality. And if you didn't get any work points because you were sick and couldn't work, well, then you struggle. Because again, no one's about no supposed to be above another. Everyone's supposed to get the same amount of materials to be successful but this is the cost of what it of what happened during this time period anyways thank you for listening today i hope this was very eye-opening see you next time on the history connection podcast i'm michael masangu